This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Jeffrey Osler. He's the author of a book called Surviving Genocide, Native Nations and the United States from the American Revolution to Bleeding Kansas. How are you, Jeffrey? Good. How are you, David? I'm really well, um, all things considered. Um, mm. I, I, this this book, is it was I found it very moving. Um, I have to admit, painful. Um, I imagine for you, there must have been some emotional content to writing it, even though you're a historian and you know it's it's the material that you work with. But uh, this is the story of a pretty. Um, I mean, a lot of people lost their lives in the period of time you're talking about, beginning in the 1760s through the 1850s or up to 1860, about the removal, as it's called, of Native Americans from the East to the West. And I'm just I'm kind of curious to know how you felt as you were writing this book, talking about genocide and ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Well, you're right, David, that it is a, a painful history. Um, you know, I, it's I, obviously a more painful history for... Um, you know, descendants of of people who, you know, survived this history and um, the marks that it's left on so many communities and how so many communities are dealing with um, ongoing, very painful and destructive processes and needing to continue, you know, to find ways to survive. Um, so I certainly felt that, um, at a distance, since I really don't come from uh, such a community myself. Um, but I also felt, uh, I think I felt anger uh, frequently as I was writing, um, because a lot of what I was realizing as I was writing and then had to try to find ways to write about was... Um, you know the the duplicity um, of of U.S. leaders, um, of settlers themselves, uh, particularly. You know, so many U.S. leaders um, said that what they wanted to do um, for Native people or to Native people was in the best interests of Native people. You know, they always presented themselves as being benevolent. And I just think that's a falsehood. It's just not true. And uh, you know, you feel you feel an anger about that when you realize that. Well, and I think the book is very striking in that you address and and I think in a really careful way uh, the idea of genocide. I mean, genocide means something to us in different ways, but I think it has some formal definition. Um, and what you talk about that I thought was really important was the the idea of genocidal intent, um, that even though, in fact, the book is about the survival and the resilience, that's one of the words you use, the resilience of Native people in the face of invaders, in, of an invasion, a literal invasion um, yeah. of, their, of their country and of the uh, the literal attacking on their way of life by a foreign uh, agency, and the 
genocide, if you will, has to do with the desire to supplant. Ex, as the word they used often in the 19th century, extirpate. I was really struck by that word um, as used. You know that they the um, the Americans often said we want to extirpate uh, the Indians. You know, you read this all the time. It was this idea that um, Indians were savages. They were uh, not human. They had no right to be here because they didn't do anything to improve the land. Um, there are all these excuses given for why it was why might makes right essentially. Yeah, right. Um, and you know, uh, to add to that, um, one of the things that uh, really struck me uh, as I you know, was doing research for the book was how over and over I would find in the record um, Native leaders saying in one way or another, uh, we feel that what we were up, what we were up against now um, as we are facing this invasion is not just that, you know, we might lose some of our land and, you know, we might suffer, um, but that what we're up against is really the very possibility that we may not exist anymore, you know, that that, that was the threat as they perceived it um, from an expansionist, very aggressively expansionist um, colonies, and then, of course, the United States itself. Uh, and so I was very struck by that. Uh, I termed that uh, in the book... Uh, an indigenous consciousness of genocide. And of course, even though that term hadn't been invented yet, um, we do have in the 18th and 19th century um, widespread use of essentially synonyms. You mentioned extirpation uh, and also extermination. Yeah, I, I I just was rereading some parts of the book and I, was, I found this um, statement by... One of the uh, native leaders, I think is, I don't know whether I'm pronouncing it right. This is always an issue that when you read, um, especially as an English speaker, uh, someone else's uh, name in their own language in, uh, um, you know, in, in our recording of it, I'm not never sure if it's right, but Egushoa. Um, yeah, I think that's right, but I can't say that I know myself <laughs> for sure. But what he said was so powerful to me that he, you know, it, it, he's talking in the 18, 19th century, recognizing and remembering uh, the, the complete story of how white people came to America. And whether it was conveyed to him through oral history or, you know, uh, oral communication or whether he knew it from other sources, he knew about the difference between the Spaniards, the the settlers in North Carolina, the settlers in Virginia, the settlers in um, Massachusetts and New England. And so you really have this sense that um, indigenous people were fully aware of what they were facing. And, and I think also, and you allude to this in your book and other books have talked about it as well, that um, indigenous people had had more than 100 years, maybe even 150 years of contact with 
white people, white Europeans, uh, before the settlers arrived, before colonial settlement began, there was there were visitors who were fishers, fish people who were fishing, or they were just exploring. And so it's not as if, you know, the first uh, Europeans arrived here to some virgin land where no one actually knew who they were. And there's this kind of mythological story of, you know, uh, Europeans arriving here being greeted by the uh, naive um, uh, uh, natives with sort of, you know, oh my God, what are those big white, you know, sails on your ship kind of idea. And yeah. I think they were much more uh, sophisticated, much more aware. And, and also I think as your book points out and others I've read point out, and this is very important that the, um, the tribes who had been here, who had had experience with, uh, Europeans prior to settlement, um, there had been effects on their, uh, uh, tribal health and welfare prior through diseases and, and, um, dislocations, you know, the kind of, uh, population pressures as Indians moved f away from the settlers into the farther west, they came into contact with other tribes who were then dislocated. So there was all this prior um, dislocation happening, and some of the tribes were using the uh, Europeans to um, help build their own safety with in re with respect to other tribes. Yeah, that uh, that's certainly true, and it um, is one of the complexities uh, in this history. Uh, in you know, at a very general level, of course, we have what I think uh, needs to be described as a European invasion. Uh, but it's a process that unfolds um, in very complicated ways over a huge geography. You know and also over a long period of time, you know, uh, okay, we have early 17th century colonists in Virginia and Massachusetts, uh, but we don't really have the full colonization of Ohio, which is not that far away uh, for another 150 years. Uh, and as you say, um, there are many indirect uh, ramifications of what's going on in the East or the Southeast that ramify uh, in, through other places uh, on the continent. Well, and also as you, you know, even though your book is really starting at the, um, you know, the advent of the United States, you know, with the revolution prior to that, you have the um, French as an actor, a player that creates tension. Um, then yeah. subsequently, you have the British using the the uh, uh, alliances that they have with uh, various tribes to try to uh, rein in the United States. And then, of course, you have the Spanish uh, and the French again in the you know in the South. So there's it is very complex and playing out over a wide geography. What's always striking to me and really remarkable that I think we don't realize is the um, powerful uh, trade and communication that was going on between tribes, you know, uh, vast distances. And even you, you talked about that in, um, now I can't remember which guy it was, but I think it was Tecumseh who went to um, um, all over you you map his journey where he's trying to build a confederation, and the distance that he traveled is just incredible. 
Yeah, I think that um, mobility uh, of individuals and of uh, tribes themselves is it's known better to scholars now than than I think it used to be, but I'm not sure it's known as well, you know, in the general public consciousness of, um, you know, North American history. Uh, And so uh, Tecumseh, uh, people know quite a bit about him in the literature, um, but I'm not sure people appreciate him as uh, a political organizer um, because he was trying to build a multinational confederacy, um, you know, that would have involved uh, tribal nations in the dozens. And he was, you know, had considerable success. He wasn't able to convince all the different people he approached to join in with his confederacy. But, you know, he traveled, uh, I mean, it must have been several thousand miles in the course of a couple of years in several uh, journeys involving political organization and communication fundamentally. So, you know, it's quite a story. And I have a map in my book that sort of shows those journeys. I, I And that, that sort of touches on another element of, of your book that I really uh, appreciate is the, the scope of your understanding of the difference between um, the South, the North, and kind of maybe the center of the Eastern uh, United States at that time, which was the United States, you know, at, uh, in the early 1800s um, and into the um, later period, it's very different what happened in the South. And your documentation, I think, or your explication of the, um, you know, we, it, I think the Trail of Tears kind of uh, uh, a moment is better known, more people would recognize it, but the removals that were going on in other parts of the South um, and the wars wars against the Seminoles, the Choctaw, um, I think those are less well-known. And the, just the scope of the effort, the um, um, military force that was put upon uh, the tribes in the South and then elsewhere and into the Ohio Valley. Um, I, I, I don't think I had recognized just how broadly, you know, I've read about what was happening in, Ohio, in the Ohio Valley in the, what was then the Northwest Territories, but it, I think you put it together really well. Well, thank you. Um, you know, it is an interesting thing, David, that, um, even very good American historians um, tend not to realize that the policy of Indian removal, you know, which was formally enacted in 1830 when Andrew Jackson becomes president, uh, most his, a lot of historians don't realize that that also that it applied not just to the South, but also to the North to uh, many um, Native nations in the North and um, that they were subject to uh, their own trails of tears. There's really, you know, dozens of communities, Shawnees, Potawatomis, Ottawas, Kickapoos, and the list goes on. Uh, I think that this has to do maybe with um, a preoccupation with Andrew Jackson as kind of the sole bad guy in the story, uh, and also then a focus on the Cherokee Trail of Tears is the sort of paradigmatic 
Trail of Tears, and it's a, a very important one. Uh, but as I say, there's many, many others. And, uh, you know, some of them occur much later when Andrew Jackson is no longer president. Uh, so I think it's really a national issue, uh, not just a Southern issue, and it's not just an Andrew Jackson issue. I think, you know, the whole United States, I think, is implicated um, political leaders of both parties and so on um, are implicated in, you know, what I see as ultimately a genocidal policy. Well, and it was, I think, as you point out, perhaps the other emphasis on the South has to do with the need for cotton growing uh, to have that land. Uh, the yeah. pr- You know, the pressure there was really great. But as, again, as you point out in, for instance, in upstate New York, you have the Ogden Land Company um, pursuing Haudenosaunee land there, the Iroquois. Um, and elsewhere, the, you know, the, the it, Ohio just seems like a, it's just a massive land grab. Um, Indiana, all of those places were just the, you know, the word greed is definitely applicable. Um, you know, that it, when you read the story, the kind of micro story of almost every tribe, it involves uh, being told one thing today that, you know, we'll, you know, we'll just, we'll take some of your land. Of course, then the in, the natives at that time thinking they were ceding hunting rights or the right to travel or the right to build a road where the, because they were not uh, able to read and the interpreters probably didn't tell them the truth or the, um, the, the treaty negotiators lied outright. Uh, but they, I don't think that the tribes necessarily were selling land, but the land sale occurs and they're told that they can stay forever or, uh, you know, whenever, until whatever forever means, and then come back three or four years later and do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just an endless, um, and that's why I think you're, when you talked about being angry, I think the anger comes at this absolute, um, uh, hypocritical approach that the, uh, our leaders took even going back. And I think you talked about this too, um, in the declaration of independence and the constitution. Uh, and, you know, it's not that Jefferson and Adams and Monroe were not just as duplicitous as, uh, maybe not as forthright even as Andrew Jackson, but in their own ways were pretty powerfully motivated by this kind of desire to take over the country. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I very much appreciate that summary, that those were, those are very basic things I was trying uh, to convey, uh, in the, in the book, uh, uh, exactly. So you, you also did talk about, and this is something I always think is really interesting, trying to figure out the number of people involved, the, as you, you, you know, the demography or demographics of, um, uh, population, how many people were moved, how many people were here. And, um, I'm just curious, like, how it was that you were able to compile the numbers that you did. And and this, I think, goes to the notion of uh, genocidal intent and ethnic cleansing, that the numbers of, uh, of uh, tribal people who were killed or died or um, disappeared as a result of the, the pressures to move um, it's very difficult to calculate. I'm just curious how you figured out 
the numbers that you came up with? Well, there were a lot of different sources I had to use. Um, there's uh, some historians have done great work on demography for parts of the eastern United States. Uh, we have gaps uh, for other parts and the people's whose homelands are in them. So I kind of had to piece this together from a variety of sources. Uh, what I found uh, was actually somewhat surprising to me and surprising to other historians I've talked to is that um, the population, the native population uh, east of the Mississippi River was actually increasing slightly um, despite violence and despite um, dispossession, it was actually increasing um, up until 1830 when the Indian Removal Act passes. And um, the real demographic catastrophes occur um, during the removal period when people are um, uprooted from their homelands and forced west and uh, become, uh, you know, subject to all kinds of misery and impoverishment in what becomes Oklahoma and Kansas. And it's really there that we see some just stunning population collapses on the order of 50%, uh, and in some cases up to 80% over the course of 20 years. And these are a direct result of removal. So, you know, I piece this together from um, a variety of sources, some government sources, um, you know, some uh, reports of um, from military officials, um, some by ethnographers, uh, you know, uh, some by missionaries who were on the scene. But of course, as you, I think, as you rightly point out, there's so many. Um, probably more people not counted in some ways also. Um, you know. Yeah, and uh, I tried to be as careful with counting as I could, but um, I also tried to point out that um, some of this, I mean, this can't be considered completely precise, some of the numbers we have. The important takeaway, I think, is are the general trends. Right. And I think those are very clear, you know, that we have, we have, I think, as a result of rem the removal policy, we have an unappreciated genocide in our country um, that is deeper than uh, the existing literature actually knows. Have you heard from um, any tribal people in response to uh, this book? I'm just curious because it seems like there are many ways that this, that calling this a genocide and documenting it as one um, would be powerful for the people who were themselves or descendants of the people who were victimized. Other than um, other than native scholars, you know, who of course are my colleagues and you know who I've tried to learn as much from as I can, I haven't really heard from you know, uh, tribal community leaders, uh, any reaction? I'm, uh, I'm not sure, you know, that people necessarily would be aware of, of my findings. Um, it, it's tricky, David, I think, because, uh, 
you know, sometimes uh, discourses about genocide, um, Native people are concerned about those um, because they can uh, sometimes reinforce a sense that um, Native people didn't survive them. You know, if, if there was genocide, then, you know, um, Native people are gone. And that's something that can sometimes be in the public consciousness. And one of the great concerns, as I'm sure you know, of Native communities, you know, everywhere uh, is, you know, to say we are still here, you know, and and we haven't disappeared um, because that's such a standard sense in the general public of Native people belonging to the past. So it's tricky. Uh, there is, as you may know, a bill that's been introduced um, by uh, Representative Deb Haland from New Mexico and Senator um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, of course, Massachusetts, um, to set up a Truth and Healing Commission um, to investigate cultural genocide in connection with the boarding schools. Um, Carlisle is the most famous of those in the late 19th century. And that does suggest to me a growing interest um, among Native people in the United States in um, thinking about issues of genocide. There's a similar initiative underway involving California uh, that was announced in 2019. So um, things may develop. I just don't know. Yeah, I, I tend to link it in my mind anyway to the uh, to the to the survival issue itself, and other, and I agree. I think that it is tricky. You do not want to feed that um, myth of the vanishing Indian that is, in fact, exactly. one of the excuses given for um, you know the, the 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 removal, as you point out. That if if they were you know if the native tribes were uh, disappearing, well then. We're we're saving them by moving them elsewhere where they won't be threatened. I mean, it's just a crazy, tortured logic. But it is a a concept that has had, uh, um, it, it has uh, it has legs essentially in the modern yeah. era. There are many people in America who are just flummoxed by the idea that Indians still exist or that uh, tribes actually are viable communities and uh, have their own culture, culture, languages, and belief systems and are fully operative. And in fact, in some ways should be and it could be considered sovereign um, as they originally felt that they were. Um, and But I think linking the the reason I brought that up is that it seems like uh, today, especially where we are thinking about rectifying um, uh, the past, um, you know, where we're looking at um, uh, trying to recognize uh, what slavery has done and that the leaders who um, are sometimes celebrated were, in fact, um, leaders of you know, of who espoused ideas that we would no longer find acceptable. So it's fair to question um, celebrating them, or it's fair to question um, or to see them more uh, in in a fuller way, to be more aware of the complexities of their thinking, so they don't just become heroic. But it also has a practical 
interest, and that is um, the possibility of restoring land uh, and doing some form of reparations because so much you can document so many cases where land was stolen. Um, yeah. And that, that kind of leads you inevitably then to the question of how can you, re, you know, how can you restore, how can you repay, how can you uh, give some form of adequate compensation? And it may not be possible, but I think it's a, you know, when, when I th read this book, I think about that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that because uh, I, that is certainly uh, something that I'm committed to and that I really do think at the end of the day, um, whether we're to talk about genocide or not, or whether we're to talk about truth and reconciliation or healing commissions or not, um, what um, tribal communities need is land return, and they need better resources, uh, and they need greater respect uh, and recognition. Um, you know, we have formal legal recognition um, of tribes as sovereign nations, but is that practiced um, in in um, actual tangible terms? There needs to be uh, a greater uh, practical recognition of tribal sovereignty. Right, and and I think what you're saying is also a corrective to the notion, the romanticized notion of. Uh, American uh, Native people, and that is that they are actually living people with living cultures, and that they um, they seek um, to have f the fullest lives possible, but also um, to have recognized what was taken from them. Yeah, yeah, I think both of those things for sure. Well, it's, I think that, you know, I really, oh, I wanted to ask you also, this is actually volume one of a two volume work. It's, I, I'm really impressed that you're able to sustain the amount of work, but volume two is, I assume, something that you're working on now, which is to cover the period um, post Civil War uh, or Civil War and beyond in the West. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So volume two will move out into the West and um, it will be, quite a bit after the Civil War, but I'll also need uh, to drop back in time uh, to deal with pre-Civil War histories. Um, you know, I've been writing uh, about Oregon uh, as part of that uh, second volume. And uh, so, you know, uh, U.S. Americans start to affect indigenous people in Oregon uh, as early as the 1780s. Uh, when you have um, uh, people coming in on ships, uh, uh, basically trying to get sea otters uh, for the China market. And they're very violent when they do that. So, uh, you know, there's already, is the United States is, even in its infancy, is having an effect on indigenous people out here. So those are some of the things I'm working on uh, with the American West now, yeah. So do you cross over at all into um, uh, North, uh, Canada, Western Canada, and Alaska, or are you going to limit yeah, yourself? Yeah, I mean, I won't be able to trace the whole history of the uh, advent of settlement of British Columbia, uh, because, you know, by that time, you know, it's really, uh, you know, I'm really focused on what becomes the United States and the effect of the U.S. itself, uh, just in terms of, of 
what I can really manage. Um, but uh, I do deal quite a bit uh, with uh, because uh, the U.S. sea otter trade um, does affect um, Vancouver Island. It affects the B.C. coast. Uh, it affects all the way up uh, into you know uh, the Panhandle. So uh, you know necessarily. Uh, the U.S. is affecting things that don't actually become the U.S. later. Right. Oh, it's so interesting. It's sort of a mirror of the East Coast, you know, where you have people coming to the coast first, um, yeah, and then pushing inward for inland, inland from yeah. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and of course, it's the other thing that I I think that is really uh, important, at least maybe, in, and maybe I guess would, would have been important in the West as well as the whole, uh, the trade in beaver, um, you know, relating back to the European consumption of beaver and how beaver became a, uh, commodity, um, yeah. for, you know, that, that really did an immense amount of damage without anybody, you know, wasn't intentional, but that's what, what the, that was the result. Yeah. Yeah. And of course there's a great deal of environmental damage. I think that, one thing that strikes me about Oregon and applies, I think, to some other places in the American West is that the process of the invasion, as we were saying earlier, is very, very rapid compared comparatively. Uh, you know, I mean, indigenous people on the western northwest coast had had no contact with Europeans until the late 18th century. There had been some effects, but they were quite indirect. Um, and, you know, this was entirely an indigenous world. And then, you know, within 30 or 40 years, you know, you go through these phases of fur trade and settlement very, very quickly, and they're intensely violent. Uh, and, and the effects, I think, are felt harder, faster uh, out here. Yeah. You know, when I think about this, of course, I, you know, the thing we didn't touch on and really maybe is beyond the scope of, of your work, but is the whole idea of trauma and the, um, uh, racial cultural, um, uh, group trauma and how, what the effect of that is on, uh, subsequent generations. And I, when you say, yeah. you know, when you talk about the violence, the level of violence, so people are, are not that I think that, has a huge effect on what, and that's, you talk, you do talk about that in the book about post removal. You know, there were, when, when the, uh, when tribes were removed, there were people who died along the way because they were not very well cared for, didn't have enough clothes, uh, were taken to places where there was malaria. But then once they got to where they were going, whether it was Kansas or Oklahoma or wherever, um, and had to rebuild their communities, there was a, a population loss after that that was severe, and that's sort of you don't really know why. It could be trouble adapting to a new climate or a new area. It could be disease. It could be this notion of cultural trauma that when people's lifeways are destroyed, it, it's very traumatic on the society, on the individual, and that has long-lasting effects that pass on from generation to generation. Yeah, I think I think that that's true. Uh, I uh, you know was struck when I was trying to understand the population 
in some cases just outright collapses in particularly Kansas in the 1840s and 50s. Um, you know, the literature on disease, people are getting hit by all kinds of diseases, such as smallpox, but it's like, as you say, malaria and a bunch of other things, and it's happening every year. Um, I was struck by how the literature on um, disease, I'm not a medical historian, but how people emphasize social stress as just a major intersecting factor, that if you have peoples and communities who are under a lot of social stress, that it's just going to make things worse, you know. Right. Um, their bodies are more vulnerable. Um, you're going to have um, lower fertility. Uh, you're going to have higher infant mortality. And, you, and you know, you've got to break down in healthcare systems. And all of this, I think, really resonates, too, um, with, with COVID, you know, because uh, instantly as COVID developed, you know, those of us who were paying attention, you know, we saw how quickly it had a disproportionate effect on different communities. We saw it, you know, with uh, um, healthcare workers, with communities of color, um, and we also see it on res- on reservations, you know. That's true. And it's, it, I think that that is resonant. And that is that, um, um, you know, if healthcare outcomes or health outcomes are worse for communities that are less well fed, who have less uh, uh, food stability, or who's the way, you know, the nature of their diet is not as uh, rich as the people who as people who are economically more advantaged. And um, I think that's, yeah, if we can see that today and sort of ex- extrapolate it backward, it's unimaginable what it must have yeah, been like. Yeah, and this, by the way, um, you know, I think that um, the pandemic uh, ought to um, uh, cause us to think in different ways about the history of Native Americans and disease because um, our general sense has been, this is out there in the general public, is that, you know, the main thing to think about with Native Americans and disease is that at the moment of initial contact when Europeans first invaded, you know, they brought these diseases, smallpox and measles, that Native people of the Western Hemisphere had no immunity to, and that there was a big die-off. And um, we now know that um, that kind of thing happened in some places, but not everywhere. And we also know that, um, you know, processes of disease continued well after initial contact, and that they really don't have anything to do with lack of immunity. You know, they've got to do with social conditions. And those are a result of colonialism. And often this idea of a kind of accidental die-off is used um, to sort of say, well, what happened in the Western Hemisphere to indigenous people was kind of bad. Yes, it's terrible that so many people died, but it was all kind of a big accident. And so we don't really need to talk about um, some of the deeper causes, you know, which are more far more intentional and have to do with an invasion that is sustained. 
Well, and also that there is the underlying sense that it was also inevitable that yeah. it, that you know there were all these Europeans and there weren't that many Indians and it, you know kind of plays into the early colonial view that um, Europeans were better and you know they they got they had a better right to to the land because they were going to do more with it you know they were going to develop it that that it was and that plays into the notion of nature as commodity which mm-hmm. you know so you have a clash of cultures but our culture being the dominant culture and the 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 winner in the struggle has to create a narrative that um that feeds our own uh mythology and so i think that the um you know, you're touching on that as well, but I think it relates to the to the health issues that there's an you know the sense of Darwinism is at play as well. That well, if you died from a disease, that must mean you're not as good a person in some yeah. way, and that maybe you deserved it. I mean, these are bizarre ideas, but they are they still exist today. We see it in this idea that we should have herd immunity, and if a bunch of people die, so what? It's very, it's very distressing, you know. It is uh, yeah. to be seeing it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, uh, but it's certainly there. Well, I really appreciate your taking so much time to talk to me, and I, I really, I think this is an important book. I hope that um, more people will discover it and uh, and learn something about our history that they didn't know before. Um, so I want to thank you, Jeffrey Osler, for talking to me about surviving genocide, Native nations, and the United States from the American Revolution to bleeding Kansas. And we will look forward to the volume two of your next book. Well, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. Thanks again. Mm-hmm. 